All good? Excellent. I think we'd better pray. I think we'd better pray. Thank you, Lord. God, it's good to be in your presence this morning. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit as you've led us in worship today. We thank you, Lord God, that hearts are ready and open now to receive your word. And God, I pray that you would come in and that by the power of your word, you would bring about transformation into each one of our lives. God, as we delve again into the book of Acts, we know that it's the acts of the apostles that were performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, we thank you that that power is available to each one of us today. God, would your word be gracious enough to be in power into our lives this morning. We pray it now in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. Well, week 40, week 40 in our series, The Gospel, we've been talking about going global and staying local with the power of the good news of the gospel. I wanted to uh, begin this morning by uh, telling you about a, a group of guys. They were coming home late one night from a party and uh, they decided it was getting late so they were going to take a shortcut through the cemetery. As they started to get deeper and deeper and darker into the cemetery, they started to get a little bit of the heebie-jeebies, as you can well imagine. And then suddenly in the darkness they heard this tap, 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 tap. And as they started to keep going, they were heading towards the sound and they peered through the bushes and they discovered this old guy with a hammer and chisel banging away on the headstone. One of the guys says, oh, holy cow, mister. Am I allowed to say that? Holy cow? It's a Hindu joke. Holy cow, mister. You frightened us half to death. We thought you were a ghost. The old guy looks up and he snarls and he says, those fools, they've spelt my name wrong. <laughs> well, there is no such thing as ghosts, church, but there are certainly evil spirits in the world today. And following evil spirits is the largest form and the oldest form of religion in the world today. It's called the occult. And it was set up by Satan. But statistically, 60% of Christians, 60% follow some form of occult behavior. We uh, covered this extensively. You might remember back in Acts chapter 7 with Simon the sorcerer. But it tells us in Deuteronomy 18 verse 9, there's a warning there. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, a, a magician, a wizard, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So Christ clearly condemns occult behavior. 
And yet, uh, through uh, Christianity Today, we're told that 75% of teenagers are involved in some form of occult behaviour. Whether they've... uh, dabbled with the Ouija board or tarot cards or whether it's a a palm reading, whether they're into sort of books on witchcraft or all sorts of computer games. There's lots of different ways that they connect in. 52% of Christians believe in clairvoyance. 44% believe in psychic healings. And 29% of Christians believe in... nearly said it wrong, astrology to actually govern the outcome of their days. And you know, I always know the sad reality is that if I asked any of you probably here in the church this morning, you would be able to tell me your star sign. But how many of you could tell me what Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus in chapter 5 verse 11 where he says there, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather rebuke them. You see, a changed life will lead to changed character, yes? And changed character will lead to changed conduct. You know, I always think to myself, no Christ, no change. No Christ is to know change. So the Apostle Paul, he was in Ephesus. He was uh, found a society there that was saturated with the occult. Artemis was the temple. Uh, In Latin, it was called Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was a religion that was set up through sex. Tourists travelled from all over the world to visit uh, uh, the temple of Artemis. It was a fertility cult. So this was a society saturated in sexual exploits. When you went to the temple, you either went to a priest or a priestess, and uh, it was really going to a prostitute. That's what it amounted to. There you would worship with all these different indulgences, these lusts, these painful practices, uh, degrading themselves in unholy ways. Today, of course... A lot of people don't have to go anywhere, do they? Got this wonderful invention called the internet these days. Do you know 70% of people who use the internet use it for pornography? 50% of Christian men use the internet for pornography. So this was a society in Ephesus 2,000 years ago that was really enslaved by Satan through sexuality. Is anything any different today in the society we live. Nothing is going to change until Christ comes in. And so I've entitled this morning's message, The Doctrine of Demonology. That's the title today, The Doctrine of Demonology. We're going to look at Acts 19, 11 through to 20. Uh, Doctrine's a pretty dry, dull sort of expression, isn't it? No one cares what that means until you put demonology next to it. Of course, doctrine just means teaching, doesn't it? Demonology means the study of. So we're looking today at the study of of demons in the scripture that we're going to look at. In Ephesus, when uh, Paul wrote the letter, the first three chapters were all about focusing in on doctrine. The next three chapters that he wrote then was all about duty. He began his letter with what we believe and how that should outwork in what we uh, behave. 
And so as part of our series, uh, we've been looking at our uh, journey through the history. Again, we're going to land in Ephesus and have a look at this video clip. As at Athens and Corinth, Paul continued to work as a tent maker in Ephesus, earning money so that he could carry on his ministry. Prior to teaching at the school of Tyrannus in the afternoon, he would have worked at the commercial Agora in the morning, interacting with customers on their way to and from other parts of the city. In Ephesus, there was both a state Agora and this large commercial Agora, which measured 360 feet by 360 feet and was located near the city's huge theater complex. In this Hellenistic city of paganism and mysticism, Paul encountered many who practiced magic and attempted to control demons. According to Acts chapter 19, one of them was a Jew named Sceva, who called himself a high priest. He had seven sons, some sort of apprentices, who also used magic and dabbled in the occult. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Acts 19, 13-17 after that event, I'm guessing confrontations with the demon-possessed may have become slightly less popular. But in first century Ephesus, the practice of magic and astrology was still considered a normal part of life. Magical scrolls, rings, amulets, bracelets, and necklaces thought to have magical powers were all commonplace here in ancient Ephesus. Prices for these magic documents and trinkets varied, but history tells us there was a huge market for them here in the commercial Agora. But as Christianity spread through ancient Ephesus, new believers began to realize that marketing the supernatural was wrong. On one occasion, Acts tells us that owners of these magic scrolls came together publicly, probably right here in the middle of the commercial Agora. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Acts 19, 18 through 20. Now one drachma was a day's wage for a normal worker. And this group of new Christians was watching 50,000 drachma worth of merchandise go up in smoke. They literally put their money where their mouth was and counted everything that represented their old life as worthless. But as Christianity spread with amazing stories like this, tensions also grew, especially with longtime worshipers of a goddess named Artemis. 
During his more than two years of ministry here in Ephesus, which is only briefly covered in Acts, Paul and his fellow Christian companions probably encountered other attacks as well. As incredible as it sounds, Paul was likely condemned to battle wild beasts here in the Ephesus arena. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul stated that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus and that he and the apostles had been exhibited as men condemned to death as a spectacle to the world. The Greek words Paul used specifically referred to beast fighting in the arena, not to any general fight with animals. In the Roman Empire, a bestiarius was a person who went into arena combat against a powerful wild animal, either as a form of execution or a combat competition similar to gladiators. The animals were typically lions or bears, which were hungry, angry, and ready to kill any human near them. During times of persecution, many Christians in the Roman Empire were sentenced to death by beast as a spectacle in the arenas, probably beginning during the reign of Emperor Claudius. A first century oil lamp from this area of Asia province depicts a man condemned ad bestias, or to beasts, being attacked by two lions. When a person was condemned to the beasts as an enemy of the state, they were forced into the arena unarmed and often chained with virtually no hope of survival. Based on New Testament accounts, it seems that Paul was forced into the arena as a bestiarius, but he survived and he carried on his mission. In his letter to the Corinthians, which he wrote from here in Ephesus, Paul was explaining the crucial importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he wrote this. I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 1 Corinthians 15, 31 and 32. Several years later, around 61 or 62 AD, while imprisoned in Rome, Paul could not visit Ephesus. Instead, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians, which later became a book of the New Testament. A papyrus fragment from Ephesians from about 250 AD is currently the earliest known surviving copy of this letter. As at Athens and Corinth, Paul on replay. I hope you enjoyed that clip. Uh, I certainly did and it really sort of paints the picture of uh, how Paul uh, faced the physical battle uh, but you and I today we are in a spiritual battle against the forces of evil. A key verse for us today comes in the form of a demonic question. Jesus I know and Paul I know about but who are you? That would have been the way it would have been expressed. Who are you? Let me ask you this question. Does the devil know your name? Let me phrase it another way. If you are a Christian living for Christ in the world and you are gaining ground for the king, then the devil should know you by name. What have you done for Jesus?
So firstly, in the doctrine of demonology, let's look at commanding cures. Commanding cures. Verses 11 and 12 again. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So basically a a miracle from God, it's something that's beyond human comprehension to work out. It displays God's power in the world and it should inspire us towards awe. These miracles were evidence of God working against satanic forces. The words miracles in the Bible, there's different words for it. The one that's here is the word dunamis. Takes us all the way back to Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive dunamis. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So these were extraordinary, powerful miracles. The, Greek, uh, the English word is dynamite. There was something explosive that was going on here as there was this kingdom battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. In Ephesus, there was this occult practice that believed that you could invest power in possessions. And so what they used to do is they used to get these pure white pieces of cloth. And so it's almost like God is saying, I don't need them to be pure and I don't need them to be white in order for power to be released from them. I can use these dirty, sweaty cloths and still do the same thing. The same power that was released. Remember from uh, Acts chapter 5 when uh, Peter, Peter was walking the streets and his shadow would fall on people and they would be healed and they'd be released from unclean spirits. There was nothing supernatural about his shadow, was there? So why did they think it would heal them? Because they had this superstition believing that shadows had power that they would be invested in power. And so what they would do is they would flee from an evil person's shadow. You don't want to be walking in that. But a good person, we want to walk in their shadow. Let me ask you this. How many people would want to walk in your shadow today? Because church, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we should be impacting people's lives in our community. So these were symbols of channeling God's power. Think about Moses with his staff. It was just a stick, wasn't it? But God invested power in it. And when he threw it down, it turned into a snake. And when he picked it up, the the seas parted. But there was nothing magical about it. Understand, Paul didn't blow his nose with these hankies. These aprons, he wasn't working in the kitchen. It was part of him being a tent maker. In order to protect his clothes, he would have worn these, these leather aprons. Uh, a handkerchief is better translated in the Greek, a sweatband. It would have been something that would have worn on his head as he's out working, doing his tent making in the hot uh, Middle Eastern sun. It would have been sweating and he would have had all sorts of BO all over this thing. There you go, Jenny, get your healing. Odd, isn't it? You know, uh, we see this sort of happen today. When uh, the practice is performed by faith healers around the world, when they want to mail you out a little handkerchief, this is not the sort of thing that uh, Luke is speaking about here. I remember uh, watching a preacher back in 2020 uh, on the everyone's lockdown in 2020, wanted a lot to do, and uh, it came up about getting these holy handkerchiefs. And I thought to myself, oh, I, I might get one of them. 
And so I started to explore what it meant. And it was part of this Be Made Whole prayer cloth weekend. And there was this whole thing, your miracle awaits you. And then there was this whole uh, uh, scripture around Acts 19. And what it was talking about there was that pastor, he may never lay a hand on you, but the anointing can be transferable to you. And of course, you can uh, get your miracle uh, buying one for a donation up there, as you can see, of 50, 100, $1,000 or even more. I'm not too sure if the pastor's BO was on these uh, handkerchiefs or not. But it wasn't a cure, church, it was a con. It's a spiritual manipulation of people that goes on quite regularly, not a supernatural miracle. I always look at this sort of stuff and think, these guys are spiritual swindlers. There is a, a millionaire minister in just about every corner who wants to preach the greed, the greed gospel. You know, the greed bull, as I call it. Lexicographer makes up his own words. It's an idol, isn't it? I'm going to invest power in this. I'm going to get you to believe that this has some sort of supernatural healing. You know, we will pay an awful amount of money for something that we value. The other day I was hearing someone paid $3.3 million for Michael Jordan's basketball shoes. Somebody else paid uh, 450k, I think it was, for uh, uh, Olivia Newton-John's outfit that she wore in Greece. If you're into music, Steve, Gene Simmons, guitarist from Kiss, somebody paid 250000 for a used piece of chewing gum. You see, we'll invest value in it. So how much value would it be for me to tell you that if you get one of these, you could be healed? If you get one of these, your loved one whom you know isn't going to make it unless God breaks into the history of their life and does a miracle. See, we're, we're willing to pay an awful lot for that sort of thing, isn't it? You know, it's a bit like uh, after the service. If you need healing, if you need prayer, please come forward. Fifties, hundreds, I'll take thousands. If you don't get your healing, well, you obviously don't have enough faith. That's, you know... It's always, uh, you know, whenever you buy something, you always want to guarantee, don't you? I guarantee you, if you don't have enough faith, it's not my fault, it's yours. But I do want to beg you, don't mistake the fact that God still is a miracle-making God. God still does miracles in your life today. God will still break into the history of your life. Usually when you least expect it is when he does those things. Usually it's at the 11th hour, uh, not when you want to command him to do something for you. He is still a miracle-making God because the power of the gospel is still the same power that's released through you and I today. It's still the word of life. It's still the word of transformation. You know, there are 125 miracles in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the start, doesn't it? God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo out of nothing. That's a miracle. He continued the miracle-making process all the way through to his son being born of a virgin, crucified on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. But you know, the greatest miracle is God's ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to break into your life and save you from your sins. You know, Jesus Christ, he performed 37 
different miracles in the gospel. And when we preach the gospel, miracles still happen. So just as Jesus sent the disciples out, and remember he gave them power and authority over all things. It says there in Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so Jesus saw this as part of a, a spiritual warfare that dethroned and defeated Satan. Then in, uh, Jesus says this, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So when you're thinking about all the power of the enemy, it's not a physical, it's a spiritual power. It's talking there about we have the power to oppose everything that would try to crush us. Back in uh, May 2012, there was a Pentecostal pastor in America who uh, brought a rattlesnake up on the stage and told the congregation that uh, 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 God would protect him. And the rattlesnake bit him and he died. Uh, do not put the Lord your God to the test is probably a better scripture for him. You see, when it uh, uh, says so you will trample, that means to walk over, doesn't it? It doesn't say you're going to pick things up. There's a spiritual dynamic here that we need to grab hold of. So the power of Jesus to exercise demons is the same power that's available to you today. If you're a born-again believer, you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You have power and authority over demonic forces. So often, though, we don't understand how that works. There's two types of authority in the world. One is extrinsic. Extrinsic authority. Uh, a policeman doesn't have any authority in and of themselves. The authority is given to them by the government. They put on the uniform. They stand out in the middle of the road and they say, Stop! In the name of the law! But if they're not wearing that uniform, That's extrinsic authority. But then there's another authority that's intrinsic. It's authority that's been given to you by God through your faith in Jesus Christ and you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So signs. Signs are meant to be signals pointing us towards our Saviour. But then from Acts 19, 13. The Ephesians, they were filled with demonic activity and we read this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, so exorcists, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. No personal relationship. I don't actually know this Jesus. I've, I've heard of Paul, and so I'm commanding you in his name to come out. See, no intrinsic authority, yeah? Now, people sometimes struggle with the whole idea of people being demon-possessed, yeah? Anybody struggle with that today? You know, sometimes we think, oh, hang on a minute, we're 21st century people. Surely that doesn't happen today. Surely it's a misdiagnosis of a mental illness. We'd rather think of it some sort of psychosis, wouldn't we? Some, some sort of reaction to some bad drugs. But Jesus was pretty clear in the definition between uh, people who had physical healing and people who had a spiritual healing course we still use terms like uh, well what's gotten into them hey don't we use those sorts of terms and we're talking about them in that sense of there's some sort of influence and force what's come over them 
But you don't have to worry, you know. If you're a born-again, baptised believer in Jesus Christ, then you are possessed, all right. You are possessed of the Holy Spirit. You are a kid of the King, amen. You have Holy Spirit DNA within you. You cannot be demon-possessed. But I tell you what, you can be demon-assaulted. And you should expect that. If you're actually advancing and gaining ground for the kingdom of heaven, then the demonic should know your name. And yet so often in the church today, I actually find that this spiritual war that goes on, too many churches want to become passive objectors. We don't want to get involved. If we can just sort of uh, hope that the devil doesn't see us, he might leave us alone. We aren't going to win any wars like that. So next in the doctrine of demonology, confronting conflicts. Confronting conflicts. Verses 14 through to 16. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. They're trying to command demons to come out. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? You know, it's pretty rife in our community today. There's a lot of occult practices that are happening out there. And a lot of people don't actually understand the depth of darkness that they are entering into. They don't understand the the spiritual forces that are at work and the consequences of dabbling with these. That's what these men were doing. They were using the names of Paul and Jesus to try to uh, evoke some sort of response. They were trying to magnify themselves and they were trying to make a good living doing it. I don't know anybody who's ever been to a clairvoyant for free or gotten a tarot card reading for free. It's all about gaining some money, isn't it? So the Spirit led this man to over-empower these seven sons. Verse 16. Then the men who had evil spirits jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating. That's pretty humorous, isn't it? He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So these Jewish exorcists, they're misusing the name of the Lord. Common belief, again, that uh, this superstitious belief that if you invoked a powerful name, that power would be transferred to you. But the fact that this demon didn't know them, that was the signal to attack. You can imagine that, can't you? You see that going on in the house, yeah? All of a sudden, these seven guys, it would have been like UFC fight night, you know? <laughs> this one guy's got seven of them in an armbar. They're trying to tap out and they catapult them out of the room altogether. So demons are real. Demons have to be respected. But you know, humans aren't easily influenced or invaded by demonic forces. God's actually designed it that way. We are to rule and reign over the earth. And so he's built within us this capacity to safeguard uh, and become independent from the forces around us. So we've got to understand that evil forces cannot overcome a human life, but they want to. They want to invade you. They want to take you over. They want to control what you do. So how do they go about that? Takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the garden, the devil came and he tried to deceive them. How does the devil deceive you? 
The devil goes around and figures out what makes you tick, what the desires of your heart is. He wants to be able to overcome you. And then if you open up your mind to him, remember Paul talked about the whole idea of us having this spiritual armour to defend ourselves. If we take off that spiritual armour and we open ourselves up to the things of uh, satanic nature, then suddenly our minds will be controlled by other forces. So Paul attacks these strongholds of evil with the weapons of our spiritual warfare. Remember, he's in Ephesus when he wrote to Corinth. Same things were going on. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. See, strongholds, strongholds are faulty thinking, faulty ways that we, we think in our minds. You see, we are occupied by Christ because we are Christians, but we can become, uh, 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 I suppose, allowing Satan to come in, the demonic forces to come in as we open up our minds to what the world might have to offer. You see, he's always out there trying to control us. He moves in. He possesses your mind. He takes control of your thoughts. He starts to dominate you. So the battleground is always in your mind. He wants to influence your mind, that controls your heart, that influences your actions away from God. That's why I always encourage people, you don't have to speak everything out. You know, the devil can't read your thoughts. So often, uh, just the other day, we were talking about something in the house and uh, all of a sudden someone's phone goes off. And what we were talking about was now on the phone. They were asking us to buy something that we were talking about. The phone has artificial intelligence, doesn't it? Well, the devil has spiritual intelligence. You know, when you are speaking things out, he's listening. He can hear what you're thinking about because you're talking it out. So we've got to make sure that we are holding things in our hearts as well. So what thoughts do you need to take captive Otherwise, the devil will steal your blessing. He'll capture your life. Folks, I think our thoughts reveal our weaknesses. Where does your mind idle? You know, when you're just in that place and you're just sitting back and you're thinking about something? Where does your your mind go? What are the things you think about? That's the battleground right there. And if we open ourselves up to that, we open ourselves up to demonic occupation. Whilst uh, Paul gave us this defensive weapon, he also gave us two offensive weapons in order to go into the battle, the spiritual battle that we face. In Ephesians, uh, he wrote to the church there in chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, two spiritual weapons to destroy Satan's strongholds. He says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So there are two words for the Bible. One is logos. The other is rima. 
You know, the logos is just simply opening up the Bible. When you open up the Bible in the physical and you read it, there is a spiritual reaction that takes place. You might remember that Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil came to him and tempted him, didn't he? And what did he use? He used the logos. He used the word of God, the sword of the spirit to slay the dragon. But the danger is if you don't know the word of God, then the devil can take that and turn it on you. And use it against you. But it's not logos that Paul uses here. It's rima. A rima word. A spirit-filled, directed word. Give you an example. Christian man, he's in hospital. He's going to have a quadruple bypass. He's naturally quite anxious about all of that. So he reaches over into the drawer and he opens it up and he pulls out. A Gideon's Bible. Thank you very much. And he randomly opens the Bible up and he looks there and he sees straight away this highlighted passage from Psalm 57 verse 7. And it says there, my heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. I will sing praise to you. All of a sudden there is this peace that comes over him. He puts the Bible back in. He goes to bed at night. He sleeps peacefully. The next day, the operation is a complete success. What has happened? Yeah? That word, that logos that he's probably read many times before, now suddenly becomes a rema word. It's a word that's used to attack the devil and dispel all of his fear and anxiety. But the devil's always looking for that knockout punch. And so the way that we prevent that is on our knees in prayer. You know, so often people think of prayer as uh, being a retreat from the action. Well, I'll go away and I'll pray about that. No, the minute you get on your knees, you are engaging in the battle. You see, when you get on your knees, you're actually communicating with Christ, who is the commander-in-chief, who from the spiritual realm knows exactly what you need to do in order to defeat your enemy. And so we've got to make sure that those strongholds of darkness can be overcome by our weapons of the word and prayer. Well, finally, in the doctrine of demonology, we're going to see confession costs. Confession costs. Verse uh, 17 through to 20. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honour. You know, every time I think about uh, exorcisms, I always uh, think back to 1977. Back in 1977, I was 12 my brother's six years older than I, he's 18. He was planning the, that Saturday night to go out with his girlfriend to the drive-in, but my mum and dad wanted to go out and they wanted him to stay home and look after me. So he decided he knew better, so he would take me to the drive-in. It was a doubleheader, Friday the 13th and The Exorcist. Well, and that girl's head spun around and did the 360 and that evil voice came out of her. I was carrying in the back seat of that station wagon. For about three months after, I slept with the light on and I checked under the bed every single night. I was terrified. 
But you know, that's what the devil wants to do in our lives. He wants to keep us afraid. You know, uh, since the movie The Exorcist, there's been hundreds of horror movies about devils and demons causing many Christians to be afraid. Don't talk about that. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. But you know, if doing that, speaking about the demonic and devils... If it causes you to change the subject, then in a lot of ways the devil wins, doesn't he? We're not actually confronting those things. And so we actually allow them to start to have victory in our lives. We start to forget that he's a defeated foe. Remember we talk about the, the devil is a, a roaring lion looking for people to devour. But since Christ defeated him on the cross, we remember that his teeth have been removed. He has no power over us. But what he does is he scares us into forgetting that we actually have that intrinsic power and authority over him. So finally, verses 18 through to 20. Many of those who believed in the name of the Lord Jesus now came and openly confessed what they had done. So 17 times in the book of Acts, signs actually lead people to getting saved. So these new Christians, they before this never thought that there was anything wrong with what they were involved in, what they were doing, whether it be astrology or horoscopes or, or stars. These were just superstitious practices, but now they realize that it actually held them in bondage. And suddenly the, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, came flooding into their hearts. And so they began to confess their sins. How do you feel about confessing your sins? I was uh, hearing this week about a, a new uh, young priest who was uh, going through the uh, uh, introductory into a, a new parish. And there was an older priest who was uh, teaching him the ropes and, and got to the point about getting into the confessional. And so the young priest was in there, he's in there for about half an hour and the, the older priest called him out. Come, come, come out here. He said, maybe, uh, maybe try this. He said, you know, why don't you, why don't you think about your posture in there and maybe fold your arms and maybe put your, put your hand on your chin like this. So the young priest gave it a go, you know. And he said, then, and maybe say things like, hmm, uh, I see, go on. The young priest tried. The older priest turned to him. Now, don't you think that's better than slapping your knee and saying, Wow, no way! Tell me more! <laughs> the moral of the story is we, we all want to get the dirt, don't we? We all want to hear what's, what's going on. We, we, love to, we love to think that people are sort of needing to confess, but maybe that's not me. I don't need to confess anything. And yet the reality is every single one of us have the dirt of the demonic on us. But God has created this wonderful way for you to just simply cleanse yourself every night before you go to bed. 1 John 1 verse 9, it simply says, If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. You know, every Tuesday night, it's been night. So I get all of the rubbish that's in the house, I bag it all up, I take it all outside, I put it in the garbage and I take it down to the street and then in the morning the truck comes and ticks all the rubbish out. Nice and clean. Can you imagine if I let it build up for a couple of months, a couple of years? 
Can you imagine the stench that would be? Can you imagine how putrid the house would smell? And yet that's what we do with this home. This is a home, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has given us this ability simply to confess our sins each night to him. And he takes your sins and he puts it in a great big cosmic rubbish dump and he burns it in the fires of hell as far as east as the west to be remembered no more. And so finally, verse 18 through to 20. The number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Confession is only as public as the sin. And their sins were pretty public. So everybody needed to know what was going on. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. You know, one drachma was one day's wage. So it was 137 years of wages, and that's if you didn't take a day off. So there was a huge cost here, wasn't there? Burning had something of this finality to it. It was public, this great cost. And then it goes on and it finishes. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Folks, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to overcome anything, any demonic force that tries to capture your thoughts. There is power in the name of Jesus. This uh, whole idea was eradicating their idols, but there was great costs. You know, there's a greater cost for you to hold on to your unholiness than to let it go. Repentance is all about changing of beliefs that changes your behavior. Folks, the gospel, the gospel is the free gift of God to you. But it requires you to let go of the things that are holding on to the past. So in Ephesus, Paul and the other Christians, they assaulted these strongholds, these powers of evil. They were overcome in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul began his writing to the church in Ephesus, telling them, Christ's incomparably great power in us who believe meaning that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to overcome any stronghold that is holding you back from being all that Christ wants you to be. There is power in the name. There is power intrinsic in you because you have the Holy Spirit within you. You can pray on your knees and God will command warring angels to go into battle for you so that you can overcome evil forces, so that you can get a rhema word that will release you from the power of the enemy. Does the devil know your name? And that's the doctrine of demonology. Worship team. Thanks for uh, putting up with me. Went on a little bit long this morning. Do apologise. Actually, I was in uh, in a church. I was invited to a, a friend's church uh, one uh, uh, time, and uh, I was up there preaching my little heart out, and he was sitting there, and I was getting a lot of enthusiasm from the from the congregation. You know, they started saying, "Amen, brother. Amen. Preach it. Amen." And I went on and on as I, you know, do and. Suddenly the pastor started saying to me, Amen, Pharaoh. 
Amen. So Pharaoh, you know, anyway, I kept preaching. He said, Amen, Pharaoh, Amen. And anyway, afterwards, I uh, said to him, you know, look, thanks very much for the opportunity to come preach at your church. And I said, but what was this Amen Pharaoh stuff? Amen Pharaoh. He said, well, I was trying to encourage you to let my people go. I'm out of the pulpit for a uh, few weeks. Uh, Caitlin's going to be here bringing you a new series. Uh, I don't think I get a break from you. I know you get a break from me. Uh, But I do look forward to coming back uh, in a few weeks' time. God bless you.